This is episode 18 of Welcome. My name is Kareem Kanji. Thank you for joining me uh, for this week's episode. Uh, I chat with award-winning sports writer, uh, currently with the Toronto Star, Morgan Campbell. Uh, he has written uh, about many sports, the CFL, uh, Major League Baseball, UFC, uh, and even focused a bit on uh, Cuban baseball. Uh, today with the Toronto Star, he's focusing on the business of sports. In his words, he's following uh, the money. On this episode, we talk about his journey uh, from playing football at Northwestern University uh, to writing with the star and his thoughts specifically about uh, racism uh, in baseball and sports uh, as well as the whole issue and topic of concussions uh, after the uh, Will Smith movie Concussion. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Your way here, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, just, yeah. I've been crisscrossing downtown all morning, so I'm good. Do you like work out of the office? Uh, yeah, more than I should have to, but rules are the rules, right? Oh, okay, okay. Like, so I started started the day in Liberty Village recording at the Fight Network, went to the office for a couple hours, to go up to U of T to talk to this prof, and now I'm down here. Nice. So good. Stuff. I remember I came, I first came across you, like your writing, yeah, when you were writing mostly about boxing and yeah. MMA. When was that? Probably like 2009, 2010? Yeah. When I had the Fighting Words blog? Yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, finally, there's somebody talking about MMA. Yeah. As it was becoming more popular and GSP was winning and stuff like that. Yeah, and it, uh, tell you a true story. Uh, 2007, I went to the boss and said, hey, let's have a combat sports blog because the audience is growing. Boss is like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then uh, about two years later, Remember when Brock Lesnar was like hunting in Manitoba and he went missing or whatever? That's right, yeah. And then it was the most he got re- sick or something. Yes, and- it was the most read story on the website. You're kidding me. Right? And our bosses, and so my boss's bosses were like, oh, yeah, so I presume like we cover this sport regularly, right? And my boss is like, uh, no. <laughs> and they're like, why aren't we? We got all this traffic. So then he comes to me the next day and says, hey, how would you like to do a, a blog on combat sports now? Like it's his idea. Yeah. Right? So that's the main thing. And we can talk about this on the show. Like the main thing. Oh, uh, we're recording. Are we recording? Already? <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, the ownership of ideas is the thing, right? And sometimes in a lot of companies, it's not just mine. Yeah. Where um, the quality, the perceived quality of an idea has everything to do with who can claim ownership of it. And your boss, you can have the greatest idea ever. If your boss didn't come up with it, or if you can't make your boss think he came up with it, that's right. Then they're just going to turn it down. That's a dumb idea. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, I have this cure for cancer here. It's your idea. Yeah, it works. Look, cure cancer. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we can't fund that this year. No. But if you talk them into thinking it's their it's idea, their all idea. of a sudden, yeah, boom, we're going to cure cancer. I hear you. I hear you. Um, well, let's sort of step back or go back in time. Um, you went to Northwestern University. Yes. Yeah. Do you know who you went there with? So I'd never heard of this school before. Excuse me. You oh yeah, you're not you're not a journalist. That's, no, that's no. <laughs> you're not a journalist by so, trade. So I went on Google. Yeah. And I, so Stephen Colbert. He, he's older than I am. He's. Is, I don't know. 
Yeah. <laughs> he looks young on TV. Oh, wait, no, let him grow his beard out. His beard is, is white. Is it? Oh, like, uh-huh. let, have you seen Letterman's beard? It's very similar. It is massive. Yeah. Uh, Joe Girardi. He was before Ela- me. Elaine from Seinfeld. They were way, way before, before me. Because by the time I got to Northwestern, all of these guys. A lot, well, a lot of these guys. Not, a lot of these guys were on the the wall of fame. Yeah. You know so you mean? felt good. Yes, I came to. The yeah. Next so they, they they were on the wall of fame. So this was yeah. This is yeah. All these guys are are way before me. Way before yeah. So Gary Marshall, Seth Meyers, David Trimmer. Yeah, all those uh, guys were before me. I remember Chicago I worked, Blackhawks owner went there. Uh, yeah, he was a little bit before. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, working in the ticket office one summer, the athletic ticket office, and processing David Schwimmer's ticket request like, or ticket order. He's trying to buy tickets to homecoming. No way. <laughs> it's the, it's he, doesn't, he doesn't have like a person or <laughs> no. And this was uh, this is probably the summer of 1998, mm. something like that. So, so this is before like smartphones where we could kind of. Take a well before a smartphone. Well yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like, I will tell you this, that summer, we weren't even necessarily taking orders over the internet. Yeah. Right? It was phone and mail and, and walk-up. <laughs> and that was that. And David Schwimmer's thing came was he, in. Was yeah. he asking for a discount? Or? <laughs> no, and homecoming tickets are more expensive because we were playing Michigan. Northwestern, because you, you write business too, right? Yeah. Because Northwestern's uh, athletic ticket office, we were like pioneers in what we now call dynamic pricing. Yes. So, wow. <laughs> how much they charge you to go to these home games depended entirely on who the opponent was. Yeah. So the game against UNLV costs one thing, but Ohio State or Michigan costs it's, something It's much else. more, yeah. Yes. Which, I, which I, I hear the new Jays general manager apparently is is big on this. You know, I'm sure he used is. To do, or has done. Jays he, apparently have never done dynamic pricing. He... Oh... I know they you do put sort of on the spot. I feel like yeah. they've done it for like Yankees for Yankees and stuff. or the yeah. Red Sox. Yeah, they must. Uh, yeah, my my memory's. But I guess shot, true but, yeah. dynamic pricing would be if there's like you know even if you know who know who you know the Twins are coming to town or like like surge pricing like Uber yeah all of it. yeah exactly and it varies like yeah hour by hour almost yeah right? where the price is gonna be a little bit higher because we know tons of people you yeah. know maybe Stroman's going for his twelfth win in right. a row or something like that yeah so that you'll get you a know? different price like tomorrow than you got yeah last night exactly yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that would be interesting but uh, and I don't know how far away we are from that I feel like we're probably not super close but I think that's the direction we're headed in yeah and. It almost makes sense, right? Because that's how this the secondary market works, you know, yeah, especially right. like scalpers, yeah. like the true secondary market, the original right. secondary market, right? How much does that cost? So, well, how yeah. much? How how bad do you want it? That's how much it costs. That's right, right? and it changes, right? Oh, you're going into the third inning; it's a little bit cheaper. Yes, <laughs> you know. So, I it wouldn't surprise me to see teams find a way to start taking advantage of that. You're correct. Yeah, so that's interesting. But you did you did uh, bachelor of science. Bachelor of Science in Journalism, exactly. Yeah, and then you also played football. Played football for two years, yes. Okay. Um, n- now, you know, you all, I, I, I don't know if you hear the stories, but I you know, sometimes hear the stories, and I don't know if it's perpetuated by TV yeah. or by movies, that the jocks, you know, they have their major, but they're not really studying. It depends. It, it, it's all to scale. Okay. Right? So the jocks at Northwestern, we were the jocks at Northwestern were smarter than the jocks at other schools. Okay. Um, some of the guys were like I walked on, so I had to get into school first. Like the the football coach wasn't okay. you know walking my uh, application over to admissions and saying, "Hey, make sure this guy gets in." I got into the school first, and then you tried out for the team. Then yeah, I started talking to the football coaches, and they said, "Yeah, come join the team." Um, but the jocks at our school they're smarter than the jocks at the other schools. Maybe not as strong academically as 
your average student at Northwestern. Sure, sure. But stronger academically than the jocks at Michigan, Wisconsin, wherever. Now, every single school has its athlete major. Even even the nerd schools, like Northwestern, it's funny. Every year we'll have one of the other nerd schools on our football schedule. So we'll play either Stanford or Duke. Some, like this year we played them both. Yeah. Uh, or Vanderbilt. Yeah. Those are the four main ones that Northwestern considers its academic peers okay. in big-time sports. Oh. So, And we've beaten all these schools repeatedly over the last few years. So yeah. we always trumpet this, oh, we're 5-0 and against our academic peers the last three years. Great, because they're all very tough schools to get into. But even if you look at Stanford, Duke, uh, Vanderbilt, um, if you scan the football team especially, yeah, uh, you'll see the same majors come up. Every school has jock Communications. majors, right? Yeah, so <laughs> before I got to Northwestern, the jock major was called Organizational Studies. It was in the School of Education. Okay. And in the year I came, uh, they changed the curriculum in that major, and they changed the name from Organizational Studies to Learning and Organizational Change. Now, the difference is that Learning and Organizational Change was much more challenging than Organizational Studies. So a bunch of guys that kind of got caught in that changeover because they Uh-oh. got into to LOC, and they're like, ooh, this is tough. So from that point forward, the jock major became uh, yeah, School of Speech Communication Studies. Yeah. Uh, the journalism school, I think there were maybe four of us on the football wow. team. Um, engineering actually had a lot. Engineering had a lot really? of guys on the football team. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's more of an academic school than a sports school. It's, well, it's what Northwestern is. Monday to Friday, it wants to be Harvard, and then Saturday, it wants to be Ohio State. That's what Northwestern is, right? Yeah. And it's it's tough. Um, there's a guy from here in Toronto okay, um, named Clifton Dawson. He came to Northwestern after I did. Mm-hmm. He was, like, really, really, really smart. Okay. Um, and he was a really good running back. He got to Northwestern, and he didn't like the fact that uh, – on Saturday, Northwestern wanted to be Ohio State. He wanted to believe in Northwestern and enrolling at Harvard. Because he's like, Northwestern's a tough school. It's a demanding school. And he's like, this place is not academic enough. Wow. And I'm going to what is, Harvard. What is he up to now? He played a couple years in the NFL. I don't know where he oh, is wow. now. Should, I should go track him that's down. That's a bright guy. A story. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that's exactly. fantastic stuff. Um, what you Being on the team for a couple of years, has that, you always hear stories about people, you know, you more on the professional side, but I'm sure yeah. it's the same at you know big league schools. Um, you know, whereby the, it's the camaraderie, it's, it's yes. the teammate, and all that sort of stuff. Ha- have you sort of brought that with you as you sort of moved on in your professional career? Um, well, it's tough, and this is what I think a lot of ex athletes have trouble adjusting to once college ends or once the NFL career ends. Is that you? There, there's absolutely no way to to recreate that camaraderie. Hmm. Um, and that's what makes it special. And we might get into this as, as the podcast continues. Football's dumb. <laughs> I love football. I yeah. played it for 12 years out of my life, whatever. I played into university. Uh, was at a couple bowl games. You know, I'd, like I was on the team. I didn't like play or anything like that, but I was, I was a bench warmer. But I was you there. Got the ring. That's got, the, <laughs> got the whole experience. I yeah. love football. Football's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a smart thing to do. It's dangerous, right? Yeah. And for most people, there's not a lot of payoff. Um, but... The friendships um, are something that you really do wind up valuing. And, it, and it's a different type of friendship because it's forged kind of in this adversity. Because training camp is hard. Yeah. Like, training camp is really, really difficult. And you guys are just these young guys. You know, you're becoming men. It sounds really cliche to say all this stuff. But it does bond you in ways that, like, working at the you know, fence of the Toronto Star, just working at the Star, yeah. or working at KPMG or whatever, sure. doesn't. 
um, you know, when, when we have these reunions and, and we see each other and you just kind of fall back into the old ways, well, just less profane because everyone has kids now. Yeah. Old, but, you know, <laughs> fall back into the old ways of getting along and it's cool, it's fun. And just the other day I was watching, uh, I think it's, it was a 30 for 30 docu- documentary on ESPN, yeah, yeah. Uh, The Gospel According to McCartney. It's about Bill McCartney who was a longtime coach at the University of Colorado. Okay. He was also the mentor to Gary Barnett, who was our coach at Northwestern. So Gary Barnett ah. uh, is in is in this documentary. He's, he sat for an interview. Um, and I just remember watching, you know, the, the players they interviewed were guys that I had watched growing up. So when I was like 13, 14, and really mm. starting to get into college football, these were the guys that were good. And this was like Colorado's first year being really good. And I remember seeing them and the way they talked to each other and the way they talked about, um, you know, just getting getting through stuff, getting through training camp uh, and the bond they had. It reminded me a lot of the bond I have with my teammates. And it's one of these things you can... It, it, it's almost unique to, to college sports, and sometimes it might be unique to big time college sports just because the stakes are that much higher yeah. and stuff is that much harder and you're that much more driven because so many people have so much riding on this. Um, yeah, and it's 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 a unique, it's a special experience and you can't really replicate it, which is why people treasure it, even though playing football is one of the, it's almost as bad as smoking is one of the dumbest things you can do. It's not <laughs> healthy at all. Yeah. But I love football. Interesting. Is it, when you watch some of these sports movies and, and maybe especially the football ones, do they show a realistic picture of of, of the game? Um, I'm trying to think. Realistic enough, yeah. I guess. I think what happens. I think what happens is when we watch the NFL and we watch big time college mm. football. Even though that's real, yeah, it's not scripted. Yeah, um, there's just a lot that we don't know sure and that we assume um here's the thing about football uh it's an incredibly violent sport yeah right incredibly violent sport every year the players get a little bit bigger and a little bit faster um and they hit each other at tremendous speed yeah tremendous speed like you go sit next to a uh you know an nfl practice you know especially in training camp when they're hitting each other or or next to the field and you listen to the impact and you feel the impact like it's percussive, right? Yeah. Cool. Uh, so th- that's that's the game they're playing. Now, we revere guys that play a long time. We revere guys that play hurt, mm-hmm. who never sit out. Yeah, We love these guys, right? And then we'll, we'll call NFL players injury prone. When mm. no one's really injury prone in that game. Everyone just, gets hurt. <laughs> and there are just people who are unusually resistant to injury or pumped full of drugs. Yeah. Right? Because this is the other thing is we value drug-free sport. These three things are, are eh? absolutely incompatible. Yeah. Right? So now I'm not going to say that Peyton Manning took HGH. We all saw the Al Jazeera yes. uh, documentary. Yeah. Right? What I do know is that at this point, everyone knows what the anti-aging doctor is dealing in. Right? The anti-aging mm-hmm. doctor gives you Hormones. Yeah. HGH, chest. Everyone knows that. HGH, testosterone, whatever. This is what you go to the anti-aging doctor for. Um, Peyton Manning's 38 years old, coming off of um, a catastrophic neck injury. If he wasn't on HGH, I have to ask why he wasn't. 
Why wouldn't you get on HGH after something like that? Point is, and then to come back and play one of the most violent games, right? So we want long. We want people. And the thing is, in real life now, yeah, you can have a game that's violent. You can play this game week after week for twenty years, eighteen mm-hmm. years, like Manning, like Ray Lewis. You can do that. Um, or you can play this game uh, drug free, but you can't do both. Interesting. Because drug fee for a few years or Yeah, because people's their bodies would just get broken. Hmm. You know. So you you would need steroids or whatever. Yeah. Any number of, of drugs to recover. Um and this is even before we get into the painkillers that people take so they can stay on the field. Because look, when a guy, you know, breaks a finger or does whatever and he just leaves, he disappears, he comes he goes in the locker room and then he comes back and he's And he's running. He's <laughs> running. <laughs> Right, yeah, they didn't do magic on him. No, you know, they, it wasn't a massage. <laughs> There's none of that. No, they gave that man pain. That gave, they gave that man painkillers, and then yeah. he'll deal with it tomorrow. You know, and mm-hmm. if, if if I can't even imagine how big NFL rosters would have to be, um, if you couldn't uh, give pump guys full of painkillers, and if people couldn't take steroids more liberally than they let on. Yeah, you know, you'd probably need. You'd either need a month between games. Right, or you need like two hundred people on the team. Interesting. You you said Morgan that you know people know what you go to the doctor for. To the anti aging clinic, yeah. absolutely. Now I would argue that probably people in the know, right? So people like yourself who are mm-hmm. around athletes more than someone like myself who literally just sees them on television. And who, my, the anti aging doctor or the athlete? The athlete, right? Okay. Um, you know. No, well, the athlete, if he's smart, he's not telling me he's going to the anti-aging no, he's not, clinic. No, absolutely, absolutely. But you sort of have come from that space and have been around that space on the media side of things. Um, you know, someone like yourself will know and someone uh-huh. like, you know, other uh, sports reporters uh, probably see or hear things. But, you know, someone like myself and the regular average Joe um, still want to believe yes. that there's a purity, you know, in sport. You know, we still wanted to believe that Lance Armstrong came back from cancer yes. and won, you know, half a dozen plus. Well, it's, it, it's it's such an arbitrary line. Cause it's it's an arbitrary line we draw. Yeah, because Lance Armstrong almost died. Hmm. He almost died from testicular cancer, so he took EPO. And this is not to absolve Lance Armstrong. Sure. Like, what's deplorable about Lance Armstrong is him suing people that he knew, wow. you know, were innocent. Yeah, that's you know, and throwing all these various teammates under the bus. Yeah. Um. But Lance Armstrong, you know, was in a sport like cycling, as we've seen, was shot through with doping. Mm. Um, so for Lance Armstrong to, you know, com- maintain for all these years that like, he was the only person in cycling that wasn't doping. Yeah. And he's 1% better than everyone, which in that world is a huge it's margin, huge, 1%. Yeah. Um, because if not doping made him 1% better than everyone else, then everyone would stop doping because clearly not doping makes you 1% better. Yeah. Um, huh. But it's it, the line is really arbitrary, um, because we will we will suspend someone or ban someone for life, you know, for taking steroids, because mm-hmm. that's a it's 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 a, it's an external um, aid. Yeah, but I can go. My eyes work fine. I can go to the doctor and get laser eye surgery. And it's somehow that's not doping. Now I'm physically tampering with the equipment. Interesting. I was born with it's or not Tommy John surgery. Yeah. Well, right? it's even that at least is therapeutic. Oh, yeah. I have an injury. Please fix it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like, no, my eyes work fine. Yeah. It's not that my eye is injured. 
No. I just want my eyes to work better. Yeah. Right? I can go do that, and that's not doping. Yeah. It's, I, it's completely arbitrary. Yeah, I remember when, um, wow, that, that uh, reported baseball. Uh, the one that the came Mitchell out. report. Mitchell report yes. came out. You know, I was all angry, and I emailed the Blue Jays. <laughs> what, you know, did you, I, what did you tell them? I don't know. I, I, I went to their website. I said, "Listen, I've got a six-year-old son. What am I supposed to tell him?" Tell him the people took steroids. I you was know, twelve years old when Ben Johnson, eleven years old when Ben Johnson got popped. I still remember popped. that. Oh, it was so. You know what? And I still turned out okay. Yeah, and and then I'm, but then you know, nowadays I'm like, in the grand scheme of things, should we should we should we allow athletes to? And, and there's always regulation, I guess. But should we allow athletes? Okay, if you're going to take it, take it. Um, be healthy about it. You know, don't yeah, take it. Yeah, I, I almost don't you mind know? it. I almost don't yeah. mind it. Um, because, like, when Ben Johnson got popped in 1988, you know, and, and his coach, Charlie Francis, did yeah. several interviews after, right? Wrote a book about it. Um, you know, and a couple of things he said was, you know, we once we reach world class, we realize what the other people were doing. Wow. Um, so... You know, I didn't force anyone to take anything, but they reached a point where they had a choice, which was to line up at the same starting line as everyone else mm-hmm. or take their blocks and put them one meter back. Right. Interesting. Uh, and he kept saying one of his lines was it's it's still a level playing field, just not the level playing field. Everyone thinks it is. Thinks it is. Yeah. Um, hmm. Like with baseball players. And it's, again, we as a society, we place so much value on performances. Right mm-hmm. and on how teams perform and on how individuals perform, and we want these elite performances every year, and we want baseball players to play. If it's 162 game regular season, we want the stars to play at least 150 of those games at a high level every time. Yeah. Um, now you think about when you go never to work. take a day off. Yeah. Like do yeah. You, do you ever sometimes at work feel tired, worn out? Monday morning, right? Right. <laughs> when you're a pro athlete, you can't have that. <laughs> Um, the difference is if you go take amphetamines or whatever to get yourself through the workday, no one's going to complain. They'll say, great, you're really dedicated to your job to the point where you're harming your health. And yeah. your comp- I don't know if your company will compensate you, sure. but it's perfect. Uh, but baseball players, football players, especially football players, like they physically beat each other up. Yet somehow, they're not ever supposed to take they're not supposed steroids. To, yeah. Interesting. It's completely arbitrary and, and nonsensical and illogical and backwards the way we look at it. Because the other thing is, because again, this started with a discussion of anti-aging clinics. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily have to be in the inner circle to see what the anti-aging clinics do, right? You look at how these these drugs are marketed. Uh, do you have low T? Wear this patch. Talk to your doctor. Uh, uh, Ax- start uh, there. Yes. What's the name of this drug? Axeron. Wear this gel. <laughs> Smear this gel on you. Right, and they market them to you know guys in their fifties or whatever. Your testosterone starting to decline. You're not as strong. You're not as energetic as you used to be. Yeah. Right. This is anti-aging. So we know that this is what the anti-aging clinic dispenses. So now, when you're a 25 year old man that's healthy, you're going to the anti-aging clinic. What are you going there what for? You, yeah. Right. Except for the testosterone that they prescribe, and that's the other thing that the therapeutic use exemption. Uh, the people get in all kinds of sports. So for the non-sports fan, that's um, if there's all kinds of drugs that are banned, yeah. prescription drugs that are banned uh, because they have performance enhancing effects, like people take them off label. Uh, but if you have a doctor saying, no, I'm legitimately prescribing you this drug for this condition that you have, mm. then you can take the drug. So what a lot of guys do is get a doctor to tell them, sign a note, yeah. Hey, I have low testosterone, don't I, doctor? Yes, you have low testosterone. I'm going to prescribe to you these steroids. Boom. There you go. That's yeah. that's what the 
UFC guys are doing forever at Vitor Belfort. That's right. And then the baseball guys, once baseball uh, ruled that Adderall um, was legal if you had a therapeutic use exemption, suddenly 10% of Major League Baseball is diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. All of a sudden. Yes. So the the anti-aging clinic operates in very much the same way. Oh, doctor, I'm tired. It's because you have low testosterone. Here's a prescription. You need some more. Yes. Wow. Um, you, you you mentioned it's something that uh, we quickly chatted about on on, on DM uh, this afternoon. Um, you know, football is not a healthy sport, not at, at all. all. You know, um, I don't know if you did you see the movie Concussion? Or, I have not seen it. I've, seen I've, it? Okay. I've read I read the original story yeah. uh, in GQ about Doctor about Ben Omalu yeah. and the work he was doing and how the NFL worked really hard to discredit him. Yes. Yeah. I remember hearing something on the news. I don't know if it's one or two off seasons ago for football, something to the effect that, you know, the NFL had settled with the players. Yes. And the players weren't allowed to sue anymore. Yes. For that. And then I saw the movie over the holidays and I walked out of the movie and it was like, wow. I was like, I don't know what to think. You know, it was. It was interesting. You know, I, I, as a football player, you know you're going to get hurt. Yes. Right? You, you, there's almost an expectation. Something's going to get broken. I'm going to get my bell yes. rung. Um, something's going to happen. Sooner or later, I'm going to get hurt. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, after I watched the movie, I, I never read the uh, GQ article. Yes. Uh, but after watching the movie, I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, people, there were people that knew that, you know, head trauma... Uh, and concussions is, could lead to something very serious yes. down the road. Um, and that they tried to hide that yes. from people. And it came out of that going, I don't know how... It was probably the same feeling when I heard that people were taking steroids. I said, I don't know if I could ever watch football again. I don't know if I ever See, could watch every, MMA again. Everyone says very that, interesting. and then you go back and watch football. And then I watched the Dominic Cruz fight yeah, this the, afternoon. The, <laughs> game is, the game is seductive. The sport is seductive. Um, but, but in terms of the the players, let's yes. go to the player side and and the injuries and and what it could mean down the road for them. Um, you know what do you you know now now that we know mm-hmm. uh, and you as a former athlete, former football player, know you know what what were your thoughts when you read the article yourself? One, uh, you know, none of it surprised me. Like you don't think of it while you're playing. Yeah. Um, when you just some, apply some logic to it, right? Any other sport where you get hit in the head a lot, like when you, like boxing is always the best example. Yeah. You know, in the dementia pugilistica, the diagnosis for that, what we call punch punch drunkenness. Yeah. You know, that's been on the books, you know, since the early 20th century. Mm. So uh, at some level we know. Yeah. Um, for me, like if I had kids, I don't know if I would let them play football. Yeah. For just that reason. Um, but because football... One is a much bigger industry than yeah, boxing is, yeah. you know, and two is connected um, so intimately with so many of the most famous universities in the United States. Um, you know, this industry has been protected for a lot of reasons and there's a lot at stake, uh, much more so, you know, than in boxing. Like boxing just kind of exists it's not dead the way people say it is, and I don't think it ever. You wrote an article, I think, on that. I, I write that article all the time, <laughs> um, but it doesn't have the same number of people. You know, when once people started figuring out that boxing could lead to brain damage, there wasn't some other group of people 
saying, no, it doesn't lead to brain damage. It wasn't some other group of people trying to discredit every doctor that made a link between mm. a pro boxing career and brain damage. Yeah. The way you had in football. Well, you had Muhammad Ali as sort of the, I don't want to say poster child, well, uh, but... Even, even Ali, like, you know, they invent this mythology around Ali and they say, well, he just has Parkinson's, you know, like anyone else. He's no different from Michael J. Fox and it's not his ring career because people don't want to feel bad yeah. knowing that... Uh, all these fights that they watched that they enabled because they paid wow. to watch Ali do it have led to him, you know, winding up in the state of health he's in right now. Um, football, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Well, and part of it too is that it's centralized, right? The NFL is centralized, yeah. and even though they kind of they suppose, even though they're supposed to be a separate industry uh, from the NCAA, these two entities work in concert, sure, right? Um, and because it's centralized, once, you know, this bad news starts surfacing about the link between football and long-term brain damage, you also have a league that's able to mobilize uh, and try to suppress the information, try to discredit um, the science. It's something that boxing never had because boxing's not centralized. And, yeah. again, and, and again, it's viewed differently um, in the public. Um, now, what I don't – just to, to your point, I'd always wonder, like, well – can football recover from this? And this was supposed to be the year, last year was supposed to be the year that, you know, we all hated the NFL because we started to think the human cost was too high. Yeah. But every time that happens, the NFL just finds new ways to dazzle us. Yeah. And then we forget that we cared two weeks ago about, you know, the damage these guys are doing to each other. And I think fantasy sports, daily fantasy sports has gone a long way to doing oh, that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because it's, you know, engaged a lot of fans that didn't used to be engaged before. And, you know your your daily fantasy sports player who can win five dollars on based on the performance of this athlete. He doesn't care if that guy's hurt. He cares if that guy's on the field. Yeah, right. He doesn't care if that guy's going to have brain damage ten years from now. Uh, go get me a hundred yards today because I got to win my pool. That's true. That is so true. Do you do you watch the game differently at all or? Um, in a couple of ways, uh, you know, I watched it differently. Since I went to university and uh, okay. you know and played at a high level, uh, just the movements of the players, right? Uh, I watched differently, and it's a different game now, even than it was when I was in school. Um, a lot of it is the same, but a lot of it is different. Like the formations are different, the strategies are a little bit different, uh, and and I am just more cognizant and aware of the force of the collisions and the damage they do to each other. Um, I'm more, much more aware of that now than I was, you know, Interesting. even 10 years ago. Yeah. I remember after watching that, um, my brother-in-law played, um, I think division two, is that, is yep. that right? Division two football down in the States. Um, and I, and I told him and my, uh, my sister, I said, you guys need to watch this movie, uh, concussion. You need to watch it. And, and, I don't, and it was more of a, a fear thing, yep. you know, cause I'm wondering if, you know, what if Irvin, that's his name, you know, got hit in that so many times that. You know, 30, 40 years from now. Well, this is the thing, too. You know, like, Here's he becomes a different person. This is the thing, too. Yeah. You know, because I'm not a neurologist, but I've just written about this so much. Sure. And talked to all these different people about it. Um, you know, and because I cover boxing and I see what happens in boxing, there's so much emphasis on concussions. And what people don't think about are all the hundreds and thousands of other hits that don't cause concussion but still just rattle your brain. Yeah, yeah. Look at Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was never knocked out. He was never knocked out. Yeah. Right? Mm. You, you wouldn't necessarily say that he suffered what we would call a concussion. Sure. But 
it's the thousands of subconcussive blows. Yeah. Uh, that damage accrues too, hmm. right? And we don't think about that. Um, and it was funny, it was about four or five years ago, you know, there was so much pressure on helmet manufacturers. You know, oh, you got, we, need, we need better helmets. There's not a helmet in the world that can save you in football. True. Because the collisions are too intense. I remember talking to, uh, talking to neurologists, people that study brain injuries, people that make helmets. I said, well, what kind of helmet would I need to wear to stop my brain from rattling around inside the skull? They said that helmet would need to be four inches thick. It's almost impossible because it's yeah, like it's on the because, inside of you, right? Yeah, because now to wear a helmet, to make a helmet that's thick enough to absorb the impact and keep your brain from rattling around inside your skull, yeah. that helmet would weigh four pounds. You wouldn't be able to wear it. You'd break your neck, right? So it's not about the helmets. No. In a lot of ways, the helmets um, enable uh, these collisions. It's like a because, false sense of security. Yeah. Beyond that, it's a weapon, right? Go, look, right, yeah. go look at uh, Roman Harper from... Uh, the Carolina Panthers, he posted a picture of his helmet was broken because Marshawn Lynch ran into him head first. Because wow. you get a helmet on, that's what you can do. You can't do that in rugby. Rugby sure. has its concussion issues you know, on its own, hmm. but you don't have guys in rugby hitting each other with the crown of their helmet because sure. you can't because you'll crack your skull. Crack your own skull. Yeah. Yes. But it's, it's, it's what people are failing to realize that there is not a way to play this game safely. You can sort of minimize the danger, but the, the, the sport is not safe. Yeah. It just isn't. Yeah. Just is not. Yeah. Period. Just accept it. And the sooner we accept it, yeah. um, the sooner you, it's probably easier to minimize the danger once you accept that you will never eliminate the danger. Yeah. Instead of saying, yeah, we need to make football safe. You can't make football safe. Not, 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 not full contact football. Um, because again, uh, all these things we seem to want as fans are all these goals are like in competition with each other. Cause if you say, I like drug free sport. Okay. You like drug free sport, but the season's got to be a lot shorter or there's going to be a month between games. Yeah. You just have to get used to like, you know, really good players having to take more time off. Yeah. But you don't want that. No more 40 home run seasons. You're right. <laughs> we, we don't want, um, because the same thing in track and field. If, mm. if you, and this is not to say any of these super fast guys right now are on steroids, you know, but people get caught often enough that, yeah, it's not that any all of them are on the sauce. Almost anyone could be. You never know until sure. till they get popped. Um, but if you completely eliminated it, you'd have which you'd have like a market correction, like you had it in in the early 1990s when they got rid of the Soviet bloc. And then people would say, "Oh, I don't like watching this anymore. These guys aren't as fast as they used yeah. to be." Of course, they're not as fast as they used to be because they can't um, engage in unfettered doping like they used to be able to be. You got to decide what you want. That is so true, right? Because people will complain. That is so true, right? When 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 these guys stop hitting five hundred foot home runs, people will complain. Yeah. When these NFL linemen aren't three hundred fifty pounds and lean anymore, people will go, "Well, they're not as big as they used." I guess they're not dedicated like they were back in the two thousands. Well, you said no steroids, and this is what you get. This is what, yeah. You got to pick, right? Yeah. It's yes. Very, very. I want to get off this, but what uh, one more thing I want, or one more person I want to just ask you about? Yeah. Because you did cover wrestling. Did you cover wrestling, or am I just saying there's no boxing and MMA? Yes. So you didn't cover wrestling. Okay. So then we'll f- I was going to ask you about Chris Benoit. Um, yeah, I mean it, it relates because there's head trauma. Right? Yeah, yeah. That action is that action is uh, scripted. Doesn't mean it's not real. And, yeah, that's right. You know, I've watched a lot of wrestling. I've seen yeah. you know, when you fall from 20 feet onto the mat, um, you're might be a strip, but you're still going to hurt yourself. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because I was reading a story just recently saying, you know, he he had the what the brain of an eighty-five-year-old, something like that, and yeah. he had depression and all these uh, conditions that were consistent with 
having been hit in the head, yeah. you know, for a long time. And I'm sure from, if I read correctly, you know, that long-term steroid use also impacted that exacerbates yeah. that exactly. Cause you're messing with your hormones, which is going to mess with your mood, which is already out of whack because you've been hitting your head. Two thousand times. That's crazy. Times. Crazy stuff. Um, now, how does a guy? Yeah. Um, how's this for segues? <laughs> how's a guy that studied that that studied science, Bachelor of Science, right? Yeah. It's, it's or is that just the? Yeah, I didn't study science. <laughs> I think what science classes did I take in Northwestern? <laughs> I took astronomy. I took uh, human origins. All right. I can't remember much. Well, how did you? How I guess the question is still the same. How do you get from that to writing at the Toronto Star? It's it's direct but not direct. Uh, the first time I applied for an internship at the Star, I was still at school, and they sent me back this rejection letter. Which, looking back, like the fact that they sent me a rejection letter is much more than they would do for anyone now. I think, yeah. but it, the rejection letter was addressed to Ms. Campbell. Dear Ms. Oh man, dear Ms. Campbell, <laughs> we don't need you. Blah blah blah. So <laughs> that pissed you off. Enough. <laughs> well, what happened was the following month. Uh, they sent a reporter to go do a story about my sister. My sister, Dana, she's an opera singer. Oh, okay. Back then, she was at uh, the Royal Conservatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, this it was like, it was Black History Month, and the reporter, Ashanti Infantry, was just looking for black young black people in like cool, unusual jobs. So she calls the conservatory. She says she asks them, "Well, do you guys have any black students?" She's like, "Oh yeah, we have one." It was my sister. So mm-hmm. she goes out, Ashanti goes out and does a story about my sister. And my sister says, hey, my brother's in journalism school. Do you mind if he contacts you next time he's in town? Ashanti's like, yeah, sure. So then a month or so after that, I was here. I met up with Ashanti, and then she introduced me to the people in charge of the internship program at the Star. Ah. So then they got to see I was a real person. With and like, you were a mister rather than a mister. Yes, yeah, so I was a real person <laughs> with real interests and like actual talent and, and, and desire you know, to succeed in this in industry. So then the following year, so I'd graduated from school. I'd worked uh, a couple jobs, didn't done an internship. And then I was living in Boston. Um, and then I applied for the stars one year internship. Um, and I did that. And then this time they remembered me. Hey, yeah, great. So then I applied. Uh, there's a whole other story about how I got to the job interview, but long story short, I had to sneak out of my job in Boston to go do this job interview. When I came back to Boston, I got fired from that job because they'd been calling my apartment and my idiot roommate was too Said dumb. Said you went for a job interview. No, he didn't say that. He's just too dumb to cover for me. Like I had two roommates. One was smart, one was dumb. If yeah. called the smart one, the smart one would have stalled, Yeah. got me on the phone wherever I was at, and then we would have worked from there. But the dumb one was like, oh, I haven't seen him in a couple of days. So I got back to Boston, got fired from that job, but I had been hired for the Toronto Star job already. So they fired me before I could quit, <laughs> and I actually made more money uh, on the severance package than I would have if I'd stuck nice. around. Nice. So, what were you doing in Boston? I was working for this uh, internet magazine. It's called uh, schoolsports.com. It might still exist. I can't yeah. remember. Some of the school sports alums, I, you know, I see working like ESPN, Yahoo, oh, whatever. Nice. So yeah, so then that was the, so that got me into the year-long internship at the Star. So I did that for a year and then they kicked us out. So I was gone for a year, or sorry, for about six months just freelancing and stuff. Then I came back to the star like 2002, the middle of 2002, but I was doing like, uh, 
I was editing the scoreboard page. That was my job. So this that's the job okay. like where the I tell the story a lot where the glass stepping stone meets the glass ceiling. Yeah. Cuz they're like, "Yeah, come do this page cuz it's grunt work." Like no one the reason they're able to hire outside the stars is no one it's the lowest lowest ranking job in the entire newsroom, right? So you, you couldn't shuffle someone into that job cuz no one's going to take the job cuz no sure. one's a demotion. Uh-huh. So they had to hire someone, right? And uh so I did that cuz they the 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 carrot is that, oh, well, you can write in your spare time and we'll promote you. Except every time I would apply for a writing job, they'd go, they'd pick someone else. Uh-huh. Right? And basically the only way I got out of that job, it's a true story, in my spare time I took on a project. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Condensed version. My spare time I took on a project. Uh, it was like the year, a year in the life of a high school basketball team. So I just spent like five months hanging out with these high school basketball students in the daytime and then working at night, you know, and then going to sleep and doing the same thing over again. And I wrote, like, this big uh, eight-part series about it. It was like a soap opera. So every was, day, it like, was this long shots? Long shots, exactly. Okay, yeah. So every day you'd read, the, you'd read a new chapter in the story, right, in the paper. Um, and the the only thing that got me out of the, the glass ceiling job yeah. was the fact that that series got nominated for a National Newspaper Award. Like, if I was... Because that's the top three sports stories of the year, right? Wow. If I was number four, nothing no. would happen. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. It might as well have been the hundredth. Yes. Yeah. But because I was nominated, all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait a minute. We got talent here. Not even that. It was yeah. more that we can't send this guy to the awards ceremony and have people ask him what he covers at the star. And then he oh, my says, goodness. well, I don't cover anything because I'm the scoreboard page editor. And every time... Uh, I apply for a writing job. They hire someone else. Cause that's a really bad look for the face. So was, after months and months and months of sorry, there are no writing jobs. Like magically, this they post this writing job. Uh, you know, I go, I apply, so I get the job. Yeah. And so from there, it's been you know, I did a couple years in news. Uh, probably five in sports and three in business. Yeah. Three and a half in business, and now I've been in back in sports for probably about eight months. Okay. So that's how I wound up doing what I do. Nice. Tell me more about long shots. So you just, you know, covered people playing basketball or was it a, a team? So what it was, was, um, well, as I was a scoreboard page editor, was the old sports editor, a guy named Steve Tustin, who I think is at the Globe and Mail now. He had brought me in and he, he wanted me to write because okay. he knew me as a writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe two months after he hired me, he left. Oh. He, he didn't leave the paper, but he left that position. So they brought in this new guy. Uh, Graham Parley, who had been the sports editor at the National Post. You can always tell which newspaper Graham Parley's working at in Toronto because where he goes, suddenly these stories about Chelsea wind <laughs> up in the paper. He's a big <laughs> Chelsea fan, right? So Graham, when he met me, he treated me like I was the biggest idiot he ever met, right? Because you didn't know soccer. <laughs> well, it was because, you know, he's the new guy. And yeah, yeah. It's not like it's not unlike college sports. Like the new, sure. the new coach never likes the old coach's guys. So I'm like, oh, I'm a writer by trade. He's, I showed him... You know, I gave him a folder with my stories. He gave them right back to me. He's like, this stuff could all be edited. Okay. <laughs> right. So I wound up doing a couple stories for some American magazines. I did ah. one for King Magazine Okay. Uh, about Antonio Davis from the Raptors back in the day. Okay. And then a couple for Slam Magazine. So then when I did those, yeah. I went back to Graham. Said, hey, these are the stories I've done outside the. So now that Americans think I'm good enough to write for them, now we're buddies. Now he's like, oh yeah, okay, blah blah blah. This is you're a good writer. 
could have found that out two months before. That can't happen today, can it? Where someone working writing for the Toronto Star can write somewhere else? Just depends on who you are. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, the guild, the, the the collective agreement allows it as long okay. as one, the star has first right of refusal, and two, it's not for a direct competitor. Ah, but so you couldn't write for the Post or the Sun necessarily. No, yeah. But I could write for a magazine. Yeah. Okay. Technically, well, it depends. Sure. If they like you. Yeah. Then they say no. That magazine's not a direct competitor. Cool. Yeah. If they don't like you, they say that they magazine's say, a direct competitor. Could yeah. be the same magazine. Yeah. <laughs> that magazine's a direct competitor. Sorry, you can't do it. Yeah. But or if they're smart, write the story for us. Right. That too. <laughs> it all depends. All, all depends on, on who, the who, who the reporter is, who the boss is, <laughs> yeah, what yeah. time of year it is. Yeah. You know. Uh, so. Yeah, so basically he and the city editor had been talking about wanting to do like a big project about high school basketball. Okay. And now here I come with these stories about basketball. So they're like, hey. So now the guy believes in me. He's like, well, why don't you do this project? I'm like, yeah, I can do this project. So they're like, okay, well, get to it. So I started asking around, um, you know, to, to, to figure out which team would be the best one to profile. Uh talked to the guy who was covering high school sports and the one rule i did have was that it couldn't be eastern commerce which uh it's a high school that jamal mcglore went to from okay. the raptors um i think because we back then especially it was like a big basketball powerhouse and all we ever did was write about eastern commerce ah, we just okay. got sick of all these eastern commerce stories all right? right there wasn't anything else they could tell us but we could tell anyone about eastern commerce as long as you don't write about eastern commerce uh so i wound up focusing on a school called jean vanier uh, in Scarborough. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, because their star player, uh, that year's a guy named Oliver Prince, so about a year and a half before, he was like this big high school basketball star, um, was crossing the street to go home with his brother, and some drunk driver comes around the corner, runs a red light, hits him and his brother. So the brother breaks his ankle. Uh, brother's name is Brandon, breaks his ankle. Oliver winds up in a coma. Oh, my. Um, so they have to perform surgery to relieve the swelling in his brain. So about nine days, I don't know if, we, if he's going to live or die. He finally wakes up. This was like in the summertime. And then by... It's really physically a really miraculous recovery because by the, the, the car accident... I don't even want to call it an accident because the driver was drunk. It was sure. A, it's a collision. Yeah. When you're drunk, if yeah. you don't crash, that's an accident. Yeah. But... Uh, the collision was in the summertime by the middle of by like February-ish Oliver was back at school playing basketball like he wasn't you know what he had been before because he was still okay. recovering okay so then I pick up the story like his first full year back because by yeah it, like by the time he had come back to school he played maybe five games something like that um, so I pick up the story it's his first full year back at school uh, so I was like let me go get to know these guys so I spent yeah I started going up to the school around November and almost every day from November through uh, the beginning of March that was my life wow so that was that was the series it wound up being an eight part series eight part eight part series that sounds really is it could someone find it online you think uh, yeah you can find it on my website okay. uh, bymorgancampbell.com um, you could maybe find it in the Stars yeah. Archive somewhere Go we'll check it out. So, sounds very intriguing. Sounds very interesting. It was it was it was a real challenge to write, and then the next time I did a big serial narrative, it wasn't nearly as hard because I had figured out how to do it from doing it the first time. Yeah, but uh, it was a challenge. 
Do you think, you know, we talked uh, off air very quickly about um, the state of the, I guess, media industry yeah. or newspaper industry. Um, you know, with where things are going, you know, less money from advertising going to papers, a lot of stuff going digital. We know that the stars, you know, uh, invested heavily in their tablet yep. um, edition. Do you think we'll see things like, you know, your eight-part series, you know, moving forward? Or, or or is that the domain now of, you know, independent media? Like, I'm always curious about that. I had a discussion with some people on Monday, you know, about sort of where this could lead to. And I'm thinking... You know, it's it's you know people are want 140 characters. They want a you know a 90 second video. Um, you know, the mass don't want an eight part series. It depends on unless it's on Netflix. Well, yes, yeah. depends on. And you know what the interesting is thing is about Netflix? Yeah. Is Netflix is Netflix free or paid? Paid. Interesting. Yes. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Um. So does Netflix get over? Do they make money because their programming is really good, or because it because it's uh, trendy yet ephemeral? Well, today it's probably a bit of both. Netflix. Yeah, I mean, there. Are you paying for Netflix to get stuff that you can get on BuzzFeed for free? No. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, here's where the newspaper industry got lost. Uh, is that you know we first got online uh, just started giving away the product yeah for free um, and expecting to make the same amount of money <laughs> you know that you would make when you were selling it hmm. right ask yourself if I am Chevrolet right and I say, if you come to the dealership to buy a Chevrolet Malibu, it costs you $27,000. If you buy this Chevrolet Malibu online, it's free and we'll deliver it to you. It's crazy. Right. How many how many people are going to keep coming to the dealership? None. Everyone's going to order the Malibu online, get it for free. It still costs Chevy the same amount to make it. But they've said, hey, I'll give it to you free if you click. Yeah. There's almost an expectation, though, of someone should – it's almost a right that I think – the public has on if it's online and if it's information I should get it I should be able to access it for free yes well two things that's only because we've trained people that way right Hmm. people are used to paying 10 cents per text message or buying a text message package on their phone interesting yeah right because that's how phone companies have trained people to think right and that's how they train people to act newspapers didn't do that newspaper newspapers train people to expect free um and now want to train them to do something else. But this is how you socialize people on the internet is to expect free. But at the same time, the expectation that all this stuff is free is uh, delusional. It doesn't take into account the true cost of doing all this stuff. Because the other thing I've noticed, again, is that, uh, you know, people complain. On the one hand, they say, well, I shouldn't have to pay because advertising will pay. Mm-hmm. But then when people see ads, they say, oh, I'm so annoyed by all these ads. Yeah. Let me click. Okay, but if if you don't want to see the ads, then you want to pay. Because when people say, you know, democracy needs a free press, they mean free meaning uh, entitled. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Free meaning at liberty to work. Yes. Not free meaning Not free, free of charge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? 
Because people two still completely need to, different yeah. things. Yeah, two completely different things. That's so true. They need the the press. The press needs to be free to report the truth, whether that truth is ugly things about the government or yeah. whether it's the the truth about a baseball game. That type of freedom the press needs. Yes. Free press does not mean no one should ever have to pay for this stuff because it's also a business. Yeah. Um, and it costs to produce this stuff. Sure. Um, now, uh, in terms of like the type of in-depth storytelling you're talking about, someone has to pay. So if yeah. you can get like a deeply engaged audience to, to, to really connect with the stories you're telling, like mm-hmm. Netflix does, yeah. different vehicles, yeah, that's one thing. Or if someone says, okay, well, we're going to make this journalism nonprofit. So that our goal isn't to make money. Um, Just to cover our costs. Yeah. yeah. And if we happen to make money, it goes right back into the yeah. into the into the business. Yeah. Right? You can do it that way too, which I think is what they're getting ready to do um in Philadelphia. Oh. Uh but again, where where newspapers lose out is I just I have never understood like voluntarily shutting down one revenue stream, right? Mm-hmm. And saying, Well, because one, you're telling readers, you know, that what you're doing has no value. Right, you're giving it away for free, hmm. um, and you're telling readers you don't value their money, you don't need their money, and then all, you're also telling advertisers you value their money more than you value the reader's money, right? And here's my problem: um, this is an existential problem that every <laughs> every newspaper is going to have to face. The ones that are chasing ad money over subscription circulation, yeah, whatever, because we've all said. We'll give this stuff away. We don't care about readers' money. Yeah. All we want is ad money. Yeah. Um, even though advertisers have many more places to go now than they did oh, absolutely. before, yeah. right? Because I'm an advertiser. I don't know if I'm going to buy a news newspaper ad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a really funny commercial and put it on YouTube. Yeah. Because then people will watch it, and then I will get ad money for my commercial that I made. There you go. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but here's the existential problem, right? Because you work in business. Yeah. Who is always right? They say the customer's the always customer's right. The customer's always right. Now, if I'm, a, if I'm a newspaper 20 years ago, 30 years ago, who are my customers? My customers are the advertisers because they buy this stuff from me, but my customers are also the readers. Yeah. Okay? So if I'm doing a story about, because you said your day job's with Nestle. Yeah. So I'm doing a story about Nestle. You buy ads in my paper. Yeah. But one of my reporters also finds out that you're exploiting workers. <laughs> right? Here, yeah. Right. Now. I get ready to run this story and Nestle gets mad. Say, wait a minute. We buy ads from you. You're, we're your customer. Yeah. We don't think you should run that story or yeah. spin it as ungrateful employees, you know, ruin reputation of pristine yeah. Nestle's. Yeah. Right. That is so true. Now, um, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the newspaper could say, you know what? I understand you're upset, but all this stuff checks out. It's been vetted. You guys are exploiting workers. I understand you're our customers, but our readers are our customers too. Mm. They deserve to know, yeah, because this is what we do. This is what, yeah, this is our business. And if you want to leave, leave. It's okay. You're not our customer anymore. That's fine. There's ten more customers that want in where you leave, yeah. and our other customers deserve it. But now, when your only customer is the advertiser, because the reader's not your customer anymore, they're mm. your audience. They're not your customer. They're not giving you any money. Yeah, it's only right. the advertiser. So now, um, Nestle's paying me. Nestle's exploiting workers. Uh, my reporter comes back with a story. He's like, hey, man, Nestle's exploiting workers. Let's run it. And Nestle says, you know what? I don't think it's a good idea that you run that story. 
Um, you know who I am? I'm the customer, and the customer is always right. I'm not a customer; now. I'm the customer because you don't you, your audience isn't your customers anymore. That's so and true. And you can't you can't really justify it now with the audience. Well, you can justify it with the audience's right to know, but they're not your customer. They're not paying any of your bills. Nestle is. So that's a really good way to run your business straight into the ground. This is the existential challenge every newspaper is going to have to face because. The brands now have more and more control because they're your only customer. Yeah, that's so true. And that's kind of antithetical, you know, to newspapers' missions and why most of us got into this business. Yeah. Do you see it going anywhere? Or, um, I, I my take is is, you know, places like yeah, you tell me you work in media, you yeah, buy stuff. You I, tell I think, me. I think places like Canada Land. Yep. Um. Um. Avenues like podcasts, you know, GE did a uh, a podcast um, not too long ago. Um, it was just sponsored by T- sponsored by GE. You know, yeah. um, you know, I think places like that are where we will see, you know, whether it's uh, entertainment fiction type of content that's interesting, um, or whether it is, uh, you know, people writing a a long, you know, takes six months to. Do all the research and write, whether yeah. it's one report or a series. You know, I I, th- I think you know independent media or, or places like the Netflixes of the world. Um, you know, where a documentary like Making a Murderer yes. uh, can play where it won't play anywhere else. Yes, um, I think that's what we will see more and more of. I think. yeah, well, especially with like uh, the unbundling of of cable. Yeah, right? and, and readers, viewers have more choices than they've ever had. Um, it's it's weird because a lot so much of it has to do with figuring out you know what people will pay for is people will pay for hardware but not for content because like all of us have friends that say I love music so much that I have these three hundred dollar Beats by Dre headphones because I need these because I enjoy music so much yeah that I can't experience it the way I want to experience it without these expensive headphones $300 headphones I'm like hey will you pay $10 for your favorite artist album hell no I don't pay for music you know this is expectation <laughs> that this is free but again it, yeah. it kind of ignores the true costs you know of producing this stuff um, so a lot of it is figuring out what uh, consumers will pay for because again you know advertisers brands increasingly are getting into the content business so i don't absolutely yeah. you know i foresee a day when a lot of us just wind up working for the brands hmm. or working for you know the, the non-profit independent yeah. business model sure and i just feel like there's going to be at some point like a cleaner bifurcation of you know the industry and the people in it hmm. um because again you're trying to be a news organization but you don't want your audience to pay any of the cost. I've never thought of it that way. It's cool, yeah. but again, you've 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 made the brands your only customer. And the thing about the brands now is that they have more options because the brands aren't married to your platform. No, right. And this is the other There's thing. There's many more now, right? There's other this places. Is the, right? This is the other thing that newspapers have 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 as a group really miscalculated. Right, all this time they thought it was about them. I thought I thought it was me. Yeah, it wasn't me. It was you. It wasn't me. It was what you had. What I had ac- wasn't me. Is what I had access to, which yeah. was eyeballs. Yeah, right. So now the brands are saying, "Well, there's other eyeballs, other places, right? Any number of ways for us to get eyeballs. We don't have to attach our message, wrap our message around your content that has nothing to do with us, and then hope that people see it. We can just speak to them directly in any number of ways. So 
your platform is just one of many we will use to get our message across. So now newspapers have said, hey, readers, we don't want your money. You don't want to pay? That's cool because we don't want your money. Fine, because we're going to get all our money from the brands. But the brands are now saying, well, we've found better ways to get our message across um, than to just wrap it around your content. So, yeah, we'll still pay just not as much, hmm. you know, because we have all these other options, right? Um, so this is... This is this is this is the dilemma that newspapers well that they are well I'm not going to say they're dealing with it well but are going to need to deal with it well if they're going to survive. A, yeah, that is so true. That is so true. Um, I first met I, although I'd read you previously when you were uh, writing about boxing and MMA. Um, you've done some guest appearances as a, at this really cool uh, meetup um, pitch series. Talks. Yeah, called Pitch Talk. Yes, um, and what, you know uh, you've appeared with uh, Arturo. Arturo Marcano, yeah, you should yeah. have him on here. He's a really. Oh, I'd love to have him. Listen to me. Yeah, I'm to listening. people listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you talk about like Arturo Marcano is probably he's he's a lawyer from Venezuela. Sports I didn't know. Lawyer. That's his, okay. Yes, but he's probably to me like one of the brightest like sports minds in this city, right? People would understand it better and they'd respect it more if English was his first language. Sure, you know, but he is that he's he's brilliant. He's sharp. He's well connected. And you said he's got like a direct line to the commission. I remember you saying something like that. <laughs> yeah, he got mad at me for saying. Did he it. really? <laughs> but, yeah, he, the, there are people in baseball that will listen to him. They won't listen to any of us. Really? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, wh- why is that? What is he? What has he been through? What does he talk about? That. I'll tell you how I first met Arturo. I. Uh, well, it starts before that. I was just. I was. Uh, just kind of snooping through a, a bookcase. Okay. Uh, at the star a long time ago, probably like 2008, 2000, early 2009. And I saw a book called stealing lives yeah. about the globalization of baseball. So it centered on a kid from Venezuela named Alexis Quiroz, who uh, was from a middle-class family. Like he didn't have to play baseball. He just loved playing baseball. His family was like, Oh, we'd rather you go to school, but we'll support you if you really want to be a baseball player. So he, he gets signed to the Cubs and the Cubs just treat him like crap. Um, and basically, any way you could screw a guy over, they screwed him over. So, like, they didn't give him his whole signing bonus. Uh, they send him to this academy in the Dominican Republic, and, like, the housing is substandard. Players are getting sick. They have to go bathe in this dirty river and then also drink that water. Everyone's getting sick. Guys get injured. They don't get taken care of. They send him back to Venezuela to get rehab from an injury. He goes back to the DR, gets hurt again, and the team never takes care of him. So in some ways, he gets it worse than everyone. But at the same time, his experience is very typical of how these clubs are treating players. So the book is by Arturo and a guy named uh, Dave Fiddler. They were both sports lawyers. They had represented oh. Alexis Quiroz in court. So they wind, they wind up suing the Cubs. And a lot of the this lawsuit and a lot of the work those guys did is what compelled these Major League Baseball clubs to improve and clean up and modernize uh, their academies in the Dominican Republic. Because before... Teams that are based in North America that have money, yeah, um, we're just exploiting kids. You could argue that they still are, but just exploiting kids from the third world, uh, from the developing world, um, and not putting any money, you know, into these facilities where they where they call themselves training kids to then, you know, turn around and move to the United States and play minor league baseball. Um, and subjecting kids to to conditions that they would that no one in North America in mainland North America, yeah. you know, would ever accept. Uh, so Arturo's work and Dave Fiddler's work and Alexi Quiroz's work uh, 
really helped spur Major League Baseball teams to modernize uh, their facilities um, in the Dominican Republic. So he, that's the world he comes from, yeah. right? So he's, yeah, he's a really bright guy, again, well-connected. Hmm. Uh, when I went to uh, Venezuela about three years ago to do a story, because Alexi Quiroz is still in baseball, he's doing, he runs an academy, he's a lawyer. Okay. Oh, he, now he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Good for him. But he also <laughs> runs his baseball academy, so I got to spend some time in his baseball academy and watching him you know, train kids. Yeah. You know, and he, he's really dedicated to making sure that like the, the, the bad things that happen to him don't happen to other people. So, you know, and fitness and like flexibility are big things with his kids. He's like, the one thing about, you know, the, the, the players I train is that they don't get hurt. Right. Mm. And cause he, when he came up, he didn't really have coaches that cared about that. Sure. Right? They would just run you into the ground and then that was that. And then you got hurt. They're like, okay, well it doesn't matter. Cause you're from a poor country and we're in a poor country. There's look at all these kids lined up out here. They'll take your place like that. Right. And that was their attitude back then. Um, point is that's the world our Arturo comes from yeah really bright guy he's been in t- here in Toronto a few years yeah so I met Arturo because I'd read the book uh-huh. and so then uh, my first season covering the Blue Jays I'm heading to the Rogers Center okay and Arturo's in there uh, like signing in under the media thing and I recognize his name and we start talking and he's like, oh, maybe you've read my book. And he opens his book bag, and I see the book. I was like, sorry, no. He tried to give me a copy of his book. And yeah. when I saw it, I saw the cover. I was like, oh, I read that book. So then when someone tries to offer you a book, and then you've already read it, yeah, I think is You're my best friend. <laughs> I think it's legally you're binding. The, you're the guy that read my book. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's how I know Arturo. He's a really bright guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Like, what's You would think that they're, you know, in, in this case, the Cubs are investing and I guess all of Major yeah, League Baseball. You would think that they're investing. Like, isn't it in you, their best interest? Yes. So, like, what would be the purpose back then? This is what no one can figure out except being cheap. Because I, you know, they felt like they could get these players. Uh, they could weed out the guys who couldn't make it uh, and get the guys who could make it yeah. from the Dominican Republic to the United States. You know, whether they whether they invested or not, or whether whether they spent money on facilities and proper treatment whether they treated them with respect or not yeah um yeah see because you're a business guy you look at it yeah it seems very counterintuitive to you doesn't it yeah yes i guess it's the same as you know the jays giving someone a invitation to spring training and you know they they give them a small six-figure contract and in the grand scheme of things they say well they're not really you know betting on this guy making it or not if he makes it great if he doesn't it's not a lot of well money. and a lot of same it, sort of idea i'm guessing a lot of it has to do with the fact that these guys you know the guys in question here mm-hmm. are from developing countries from countries that don't have a lot of money from countries where english is not the first language frankly where countries where a lot of people have melanin black various shades of brown mm. all these things uh play into whether or not they're going to get treated the same way anglo americans from middle class homes who are often white will be treated right because you can't treat americans like that because americans won't take it no <laughs> right yeah especially the guys that play baseball now sure you know a lot of these guys from middle class homes their parents do well these guys will get lawyers you can't you can't have a guy with a dislocated shoulder and just sh- shovel him off to the side of the diamond like they did with Alexi Quiroz. There's no way. Because hmm. this kid's, you, you know this guy, first of all, he's growing at 17. He's with his parents. You haven't ripped him away from his family. Yeah. Um, and his parents will get lawyers. You mm-hmm. can't do that. And I, I don't, these, you know, the Cubs back then, and none of these teams, it didn't occur to them that any of these uh, young Latin American players 
would get legal representation or try to organize. Wow. And that was what wound up happening, right? And, you know, a lot of these, at those, at they, you know, they were treating guys badly because they could, because they didn't think these guys, these teenagers from the, from the developing world had any power until some of them started getting lawyers and these lawyers started taking them to court in Chicago and New York and then they had to become accountable for the way they were treating these prospects. Have things changed? Um, I wasn't around back then. Sure. From what I gathered from talking to Arturo and talking to talking to Alexis, yeah. yes, things have improved. Um, what you've seen recently is, uh, I'm not going to call it an exodus, but a slow trickle of teams from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Because Venezuela has become so dangerous and so unstable okay. that they would rather, they'll scout kids from there. There's all kinds of Venezuelans at play. But at their first opportunity, like a lot of teams don't have academies in Venezuela anymore. So if they like a kid that's from Venezuela, they'll get him out and send him to the academy in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Because the perception is that crime is lower and politics are less unstable in the DR. Okay. Um, so, and the, another indication that things have changed is that you don't have as many lawsuits. Sure. In Major League Baseball a few years back, they account they appointed Sandy Alderson, who had been the GM of the New York Mets, to oversee wow. Latin American operations because you know again there was some accountability that was needed. And now you're seeing, uh, I want to say it's the Arizona Diamondbacks. Okay, you know that have not. I'm trying to think of the exact word here, but like guaranteeing basically uh, that they will provide at minimum like a high school GED level education to the, these prospects that they bring to the United States from the DR, from Latin America, right? Okay. Which is something you didn't see before. Interesting. Um, now you make it sound like there's only one team that's doing this. Is there? I can't remember if the Diamondbacks are the only one, but they were the first ones. Okay. Um, and is this like a, a long time ago or? No, no, no. It was in the last couple of seasons. That's it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See that again, that's like just boggles my mind. Well, the other thing, like hockey yes. with OHL or you know kids that you know billet from out of town, stay with another family. It's it's you you got to go to school, guy. Yeah, baseball's not like that. And here's and you think about the difference between Major League Baseball, the way Major League Baseball views Latin American kids versus main, mainland North American kids, sure, or people from anywhere else in the world, really. Um, July second every year is the first day. Uh, international free agents can sign, right? Um, so every year you have all these guys, and you have to be 16 years old as of July 2nd. Wow. Okay? Um, but the thing now is, all these guys in Latin America, and they're free agents, so you have to go out and negotiate this contract. you got to get the team to pay as much as you can, right? And the fact that there's, there isn't yet a draft system for those players mm-hmm. kind of works in their favor because the only leverage they really have is... You know, using one team versus another to to drive the price up, um, but these guys are sixteen years old, being signed, right? You think about what an American sixteen year old baseball player is doing. He's not worried about playing pro, not that summer. Sure, earliest they're going to draft him is eighteen when he finishes high school, right? Yeah, and then he can go into the draft again at twenty, twenty one, whenever. Um, so what happens is. Uh, there's this expectation, you know, that a guy at 16 is going to be everything he's going to be, right? And then teams wonder why guys lie about their age, right? Because if you get to 18, then the teams say, well, you're too old. I can't do anything <laughs> with you. You're too old. Even though if you're an 18-year-old American, you're, you're still a baby. Yeah. Right? Jeez. You get to 18. So this is why 18-year-old guys turn around and say, well, I'm 16. 
And I don't blame them. We, oh, okay. Right. And we in North America, we blame these, oh, look at Miguel Tejada lied about his age. Well, you would too. Listen, if I was growing up in the Dominican Republic and my family was poor and I was good at baseball and someone said to me, hey, I want to sign you. I want to give you $500,000. How old are you? I would, my question is, how old do you need me to be? Mm-hmm. If I'm 15 and you need me to be 16, I'll say I'm 16. Yeah. If I'm 17 and you need me to be 16, I'll say I'm 16. I don't see why people don't get that, right? Because you don't expect yeah. American 16-year-olds to be ready per- for professional baseball. Yet you don't, somehow sure. these 16-year-old kids, because I remember going down to the academy, to Alexi Quiroz's academy in, in Venezuela, you know, and, and these were kids. These were kids. They're not people I would ever think about drafting. Mm. right yeah in major league baseball these are, like these guys were babies they had braces and stuff um you got vlad jr right being signed by the jays at 17 and he's like years yes from the majors right and it, and and it's it's a much bigger risk because the talent the the number of players at 17 that is playing is much bigger and and the players who long term don't have that type of talent they haven't all been weeded out yet yeah and then you know because this is how we do in sports like <laughs> We give a bunch of money to a guy that's 17 years old, and then at 21, he doesn't turn out what we wanted him to be, and we blame him. Oh, he's a bust. Mm. Whereas, again, if he'd grown up in North America, we would have been able to watch all these 17-year-olds turn into 21-year-olds and then decide which ones we want to pick. Yeah. Instead of blaming, because basically you're just blaming a 17-year-old for being 17. Jeez. Yes. That is very interesting. Um, There was a, a lot of stuff that happened... This past year, at least to me, yeah, that I, I looked at uh, throughout the season in baseball, and I'm going, is that just ignorance? Is that racism, or is it a bit of both? Um, they're cousins. They're, it's ignorance and racism. Yeah, <laughs> they're closely yeah, related. They, they are, aren't they? Yes, they're um, inbred. You know, and, and one of them, it, it sort of wasn't a big thing, but to me, it was like, you know, I've never heard you say about this. You say this about anyone else, and it was when. I believe it was Jerry Howarth and, yes. you know, complaining about Jose Reyes. Yes. Smiling, playing, what did playground baseball he called Yeah, call it street ball. Street ball. Yes. Um, were, you, were, you, were you at that pitch talks? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and I'm, I've never, and God bless Jerry. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up listening to Tom and Jerry and it was like, of course you did. When, when you hear their voices, you just feel warm inside. You know, that's yep. the beginning of summer. But I almost felt like, how I feel these days about Don Cherry. It's like, okay, enough already. You yeah, know? He's, he's very much from a different era. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, okay, because people talk about racism as if it's a dichotomous thing, like you are, you aren't. Hmm. Or as if it's, it's often it's more of a continuous thing. It's on a spectrum, right? And then there are all kinds of people who don't feel they're racist in their hearts genuinely, um, don't feel like they discriminate against people on sure. the basis of their skin color or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, say things or think things. Yeah, that are biased, right? So when you one, when you criticize Jose Reyes, you know, for smiling too much on the field, mm-hmm. and we talk about this a lot, where where black players are concerned and Latin players are concerned and black Latin players are concerned is. Uh, the double standards and the constant moving of the goalposts and the constant changing expectations, mm-hmm. right? Because on the one hand, you know, if, if if a black player or a Latin player especially uh, doesn't show sufficient gratitude for being in Major League Baseball, uh, right? Yeah. What are you, you're lazy, you're entitled, 
you're prima donna. You know how lucky you are to be playing this game? How lucky you are? Yeah. Right. So now Jose Reyes has the nerve to enjoy himself playing baseball because he's a grown man. And there are any number of other things he could be doing for a living that aren't as, one, enjoyable, two, as well paid as the job he has. Yeah. And he smiles. And all of a sudden it's, oh, you're not taking your job seriously? This is a, this is a job, son. Yeah, all right? of a sudden. You, can't, you cannot win. <laughs> yeah. You can't win. And then, again, just the idea of street ball, whether it's conscious or not, it's not something you would say about a white player. It's not. Yeah. It absolutely is not. This is one of these phrases that you you know people borrowed from basketball, and it's, mm. it's used as a pejorative uh, to describe most times a black pl- yes, a black American player uh, who who as a pejorative as a pejorative to describe a black American player who is really individualistic and flashy but not super effective. Yeah, right. Because when Jason Williams came along in 1999 and played like that, oh my god, street ball. Everyone said, oh, he plays with such flair, right? Um, and again, it's what I said. Skin at, color. Yes, and again, what I said at Switch at Pitch Talks was that uh, baseball people, especially people that are married to this, to the idea of baseball and what they think baseball represents in the golden age of baseball in the '30s and '40s and '50s, have to decide um, how they feel about so-called streetball. Because there was a time, um, you know, when a lot of the white American players in baseball were Italian American. Right. This is where we get. Yeah the Yogi Berras and the Joe Garagiolas and the Joe DiMaggio's from this era. The guys were playing in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then, you know, playing baseball in the street, like that was romanticized, right? True. You, you guys want to play stick bull. Yeah. That was romanticized. Cool. Yeah, he plays like he plays in the street with the unfettered joy of a kid playing baseball yeah. in the street. That's supposed to be a great thing. But Jose Reyes does it, and it's oh, he plays with, with, with the entitlement and disrespect of a guy playing in the streets and playing America's pastime. Right. And yeah. as Arturo pointed out, this guy's he's never played in the street. He's been a professional baseball player since he was probably, you know, fourteen or fifteen years old. Yeah. You know, so he's he's never played in the street. But this is the type of you know, it's reflexive a lot of times. It's maybe not intentional. It doesn't mean it's not biased. Yeah. And the second one was probably Canada's biggest baseball moment. Yes. Was was the bat flip. Yep. Was the Jose Bautista bat flip. And maybe I combine them all together, but I've seen almost every baseball player who hits a home run do some sort of a bat flip. Um, but it, it seemed at that moment... It was the know, moment in the stakes, yes. And, yeah. and the fact that Jose Bautista has to explain himself and defend himself for it. Uh, but again, that one, to me, was like, are you got to be kidding me. Yes. Because baseball is really hidebound and, and tradition-bound. And a lot of, uh, and there's a close but not exact relationship between like these baseball traditions and unwritten rules. Yeah. And the race and ethnicity and national origin of the players that uphold them. Mm. So for the most part, uh, the guys who are most wrapped up in all these unwritten rules about respecting the game are the American born white Anglo players. Mm. Right. Um, and, and like the St. Louis Cardinals kind of embody that, you know, but they have, they've had Yadier Molina on their team. Sure. Um, but by virtue of the fact that he's on their team, he gets away with all kinds of stuff. Like there was a time he shoved the umpire. No one said anything about it. Oh, he's because he plays for the Cardinals. He's just intense. Whereas if someone yeah. else had shoved an umpire, they would say respect, respect the game. The game. Um, yeah. So, and, and, and the idea, you know, that you shouldn't celebrate ever in baseball. That's part of this, 
crazy Byzantine code of unwritten rules that a lot of these white American Anglo players and then also uh, white American Anglo, especially the old guy reporters, yeah, feel tasked with upholding. Right. I don't remember anyone saying about Donaldson to you know. As he rounds third after hitting a game-winning home run, throws his helmet up in the air. That's just intensity and exuberance yeah. because he's white and he speaks English, right? Mm. But if a black guy or a Latin guy or, or someone who is both does it, then it's not respecting the game. Um, Brett Boone, if you Google Brett Boone, um, this guy used to flip his bat after every home run. They used to make commercials about it in Seattle, right? <laughs> it wasn't a problem. Yeah. But if, if Yasiel Puig does it, We'll say Bautista does it, then it's you're not respecting the game. There's what are you doing? There's kids watching. Now they're gonna emulate you. Ooh, yeah. Who cares? And listen, man. And, and again, now Jose Bautista has to get on uh Players Tribune and, and write this essay uh defending himself yeah. for a spontaneous celebration which is completely justified in the moment. Like it's the biggest moment of your anyone, whatever oh, your absolutely. job is. And if if you're a person that loves your job and, and takes pride in your craft the biggest moment of your career, and you come through with the best thing you've ever done. Yeah, you're not going to celebrate, then you're not human. Yeah. And what I found, and it was sad, you know, that but true, because hmm. uh, it, it what what happened was too, it took a really long time for mainstream media, uh, especially baseball, white Anglo male old baseball media to kind of catch on that there was this double standard. Um, but now the whole idea of pointing out double standards has kind of become gentrified because now all those guys are pointing them out as if they're the first ones to see it, <laughs> yeah. right? And one of the things that Arturo had said on Twitter was that because Ken Rosenthal uh, from Fox yeah. Sports, big baseball reporter, he had written you know the day after the bat flip, maybe maybe the day after, but in, you know in the couple of days pre- or after the bat flip. Uh, he had written that there's this really double, really strong double standard in how people treated Bautista compared to how they treated other people. And I yeah. remember Arturo tweeting, you know, um, thankfully Ken Rosenthal said it because now maybe someone will take it seriously because if I had said it, they wouldn't, which yeah. is sad, right? Because it's, it's, if I say it, Arturo says it, it's no less true and people won't listen until... Sure. Someone from their flock says it. Until, until that person says it and then all of a sudden... Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's the Christopher Columbus. You've discovered something that's already been discovered, but you get credit. Yeah, right. They've Columbus the idea of of double standards. Exactly. Wow, we're we're. I think this is the longest I've ever talked to somebody. Whew, how long uh, have you been talking? We're we're like at a, at a buck twenty now. Whew, man. <laughs> but this has been great. I don't know if we've if there was anything specific you wanted to make sure we talked about. No, man. This is. Uh, but, we've covered a lot. We've covered football. We've covered. Uh, yeah. This has been great. We've really... covered the newspaper industry. <laughs> we've covered baseball and double standards. We've done a lot, man. Yeah. Hopefully we'll fix one of those. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot. It's, we it's, don't know. It's but a listen, lot to have to fix, man. Yeah. Listen, thanks so much for dropping by. No problem. If people wanted to like check you out or, or you know on Twitter, you know where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Morgan P. Campbell, and that's kind of like a good uh, like clearinghouse for what I'm doing. Awesome. You know, I'm at the Star, my day job. So I have like an author page there, but you can always see what I'm writing. Like if you just follow my Twitter feed or uh, my Facebook page, uh, which is kind of a, the URL is kind of a, a shout out to a past project, but it's facebook.com slash sportonomics because I cover the economics sportonomics. of sport. Yes. That's right. Awesome. I cover the economics of sport. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, anytime. Appreciate it. Yes.